Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 188 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday afternoon, December 22nd, 2020. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Blodick. Bobby, it is almost the holidays. We're almost there. Yet, uh, the stack of exams to be graded doesn't look it. I don't feel on vacation in the slightest. My to-do list is, is g- given that today is the last day of daycare until January 4th, my to-do list is a little bit um, disturbing. There's, uh, there's no vacation from that when uh, the daycare goes away. Uh, I've got a stack of cybersecurity exams uh, that are still crying out to be worked through. And then there's a whole other class worth of exams that I then will be picking up this afternoon. Oh, boy. Yeah, the next two weeks are going to be... Filled with lots of procrastinating time spent on Twitter, maybe lots of yard work. Yeah, it'll get there. Um, So we've got a lot of fun stuff to talk about. Well, maybe fun's not the right word, but there's interesting stuff to talk about. Trumplandia in Twilight has proven to be every bit as interesting as we imagined it might be. We've got Erica Newland's op-ed in the New York Times uh, that I think it's going to be a very rich discussion because for, well, for four years, we've been debating periodically uh, the ethics and merits and policy desirability of uh, service in the Trump administration by those who uh, are not on board with attacks on the rule of law and and related in, in on democracy. And that, that's right at the heart of Erica's op-ed. We've always disagreed in the past. I suspect we'll continue to disagree now, but that'll be fun to talk about. And then um, there's been a lot of uh, seditious conspiracy talk, and I mean both in its own right and as an object of analysis. So I guess we're going to have to talk about 18 U.S. Code 2384. So and and 10 U.S.C. Uh, 894A2. Get the UCMG in there. All right. Well, uh, we'll, or the UCMJ. What did I say? You said UCMG, which is a totally, which, which you know, <laughs> I mean. You know, the Uniform Code of uh, uh, Military, military goodness. goodness. Of massive greatness, mm. UCMG. There's a there's a show title in there. Tune in for more UCMG coverage. Uh, we'll need to talk about the uh, sudden rise and seemingly equally sudden collapse of a rushed attempt uh, at the Pentagon to split NSA and Cybercom. Something that's been much discussed for years, but no one thought was about to happen until suddenly it seemed like it might be about to happen. We'll unpack that a bit. Um, We need to talk about the NDAA. As promised, we continue to trickle out bits and pieces of it that cut our eye. There's there's a piece I'd like to highlight today, Steve, that is super relevant for the solar winds anxiety-laced conversation that's been going on all week. Um, And yes, of course, we are all expecting the president to issue a uh, overt veto, not not just to let the clock run out without signing it, but tomorrow is the 10-day mark. And on that day, just on the cusp of holiday travel, everybody in Congress out of there, then he's going to dare them to come back and dare them to override his veto. So we'll talk about that more. On the terrorism side of our docket, we've got a, a significant story about an Al-Shabaab plot, uh, allegedly 9-11 type plot to bring a, uh, to crash an airplane, very much a 9-11 style plot. And then the really surprising news yesterday about DOJ bringing out new Pan Am 103, that's Lockerbie, Scotland, Pan Am 103 charges against a bomb maker or an alleged bomb maker. So I think that'll give us plenty to touch base with. Did I miss anything? Frivolity. Oh, we must never, never miss the frivolity. We've, we will not say anything now because we don't want to do spoilers, but Mandalorian. Season finale. It was good. At least I thought so. I'm not sure what you thought. Yeah, actually, I actually thought it was good. Okay. All right. Um, which we'll, is more than I can say for the trailer to Coming to America, which which has me very nervous. All right. Our, our pop culture and uh, inevitably New York Giants as well. Sports uh, segment. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh. Yeah. The NFC East, the NFC least is looking bad. It's actually looking interesting. I mean, I mean, we're at a point. Listen, with two weeks to go in the season, any one of the four teams in the division could still win the division. I think that's interesting. That is that is pretty extraordinary, considering the four teams we're talking about. Well, there is that. that they all are. All right, yeah, we'll have a general uh, movies, TV, and sports segment at the end. Uh, but for now, Trump Landia in Twilight. So Erica Noland, uh, or Newland, sorry, Erica. Erica Newland's op-ed. Uh, Erica Newland has been at the Office of Legal Counsel at the Justice Department. 
And uh, it, it's a it's a it's a great piece, um, and I really respect the uh, the outward sharing of something she's obviously been angsting over and wrestling with for many years, and it's an issue of general public interest. And that's the question of if you are. I, I think her question is or her her angst is specifically about the role of government lawyers. You're a government lawyer who's not okay with at least certain things. Uh, President Trump has pursued in the policy realm and more broadly over the past four years. And she says, in effect, that early on, I thought it was very important that uh, that I be here and that others like-minded be here to guard against the excesses, to, to push back and to make sure that what Trump would no doubt call the deep state, in fact, is resisting what he's trying to accomplish, at least on certain dimensions. But now she feels, in retrospect, that was a grave error that it would have been much better to have had mass resignations, mass refusal to participate. Um, and, and a key move in the argument is the observation that when you look at the clown show, and I think that's actually the technical term, Steve, the clown show of bad legal representation and poor lawyering uh, unleashed under the heading of the Kraken in the campaign lawsuits where, where, you, where you don't get professionals doing the litigation you, you get something else and you look how that just crashes and burns all over the place. She's drawing a lesson and she, I think, expressly argues that, you know, much the same could have been happening all along with all sorts of outrages uh, coming out of the White House. So I'm not persuaded and I don't want to just keep monopolizing the mic, Steve. So if you want to jump in, but I'm happy to say why I'm not persuaded. Well, I, I, so I think, I mean, the the thesis of the argument, I mean, so first of all, I, I think it's really helpful for Erica to have written that piece. I mean, whether we agree with her or not, I think it's a perspective that that, that needs to be out there. Um, what I think the argument turns on is whether you think um, bad lawyers produce worse results, right? Like, like, I mean, it seems to me, right, that, that you know, is it is it is it the lawyering or is it the or is it the legal issues that are going to drive the bus? Because you know her basic thesis is that if all of the competent lawyers had abandoned the administration two or three years ago, they would have been a lot less successful in achieving a lot of the bad things they've achieved. Right? That that incompetent lawyers would have had a harder time um, doing the stuff that the competent lawyers have been doing. And I guess the question is, do you disagree with that? Well, I think that assumes the critical move in the argument. So if, if the assumption is that there's some world in which no, literally by definition, we stipulate that no one competent will do the legal work, then right. I mean, we, we've we kind of given the whole argument away. But the question is, is there any re remotely realistic world in which if Erica and others like her had all quit on you know day five or whatever, whatever point during the first year when they realized how things were going to be, however belatedly, um, what would then have happened? Would everybody then with their hand on the briefs, everybody with their hands on the keyboard, would it all have been Sidney Powell? Uh, and I don't think so at all. I don't think there's any realistic pathway where you could say that nobody with fundamentally basic lawyering skills is is working in the administration. Now, if if you can, if you hypothesize that that is the world we're living in, well, why don't we go a little further and let's hypothesize that the entire nation goes on a general strike and and we were and no one will do any work. The economy is brought to a grinding halt until there's an impeachment. I mean, it it seems to me to assume away the the realm of all things that reasonably could happen. I think so. To shift into what I think that world would look like, if Erica and others like her, if 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 all the other heads of cabinet agencies that we've debated about in other instances and other key figures who you and I have agreed are people who were not on board with Trump's excesses or worse. And uh, but stayed in there because they wanted to ameliorate things like Dan Coats is somebody we used to argue about, right? Um, if all these people, including a pretty generous description of them, all got out very quickly, what you'd have is not a lot of talented people, probably, but you might actually have some very talented people who nonetheless were entirely on board with what Trump was interested in doing and who would provide services. You can't assume that the the crew he was able to assemble for the election uh the attempt to overthrow the election would represent what would then happen. Um, and and then secondly, and here's my maybe bigger concern, because again, she is stipulating something. I shouldn't fight the hypothetical too much. Let's assume the talented people really are all gone and that there is some stuff that they just can't, they just can't figure out how to make the train run. And so there's some things they want to accomplish that they're not able to achieve um, because the courts will strike it down. There's so much though, 
especially in the security and foreign affairs realms, there's so much that won't ever be in a court. And so I think her solution overlooks the problem that arises when there are certain things where OLC itself is going to be the last word, which is potentially a wide swath of important issues. You lose the checking function where someone like Erica can effectively put the brakes on over other agencies. There's a, there's a realm of intra-executive decision-making that's not ever going to be litigated in short. And even if only for that, you really need sensible people of goodwill to remain in there. That's my that's my pitch. Okay, but I mean, I do think, so in, in a sense, I think we're just rehabbing the same fight that we've been having for four years. But but I, I think that you are discounting what to me is the signal upside of of what Eric is arguing for, which is the the, the signaling function, right? That That you know, if there had been, I mean, we, we've talked before about how surprised we are at how few, you know, sort of loud resignations there have been from the Trump administration. And, you know, maybe if there had been more of them earlier, right, um, that would have actually shifted the course of policy. It would have led to larger fissures in the Republican Party. It would have given more congressional Republicans a backbone to stand up to Trump. I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is look at the election litigation and look at how much people are making out of the fact that no serious, well-credentialed Republican lawyer is supporting any of this, right? Like, you know, it is a big deal to people that Paul Clement and Mike Carvin and, you know, folks of that ilk um, aren't touching the Trump campaign litigation with a, you know, with a 10-light-year a, a poll. And I guess I take Erica's point to be, imagine if we had been signaling that Two years ago, imagine if like, you know, instead of having people staying in on the theory that they could quietly effectuate better things from the inside and, you know, maybe succeeding, maybe not, we may never know, you know, imagine if we had had the canaries in the coal mine, you know, squawking um, and, and really sort of, you know, making it clear two years ago that this was an administration that was doing things for the wrong reasons, that was not coming into the rule of law, that was going to do damage and stuff going forward. I guess her point is, at least the way the last six, seven weeks have gone, it's not implausible to think that that could have changed the public perception. I think that it's unlikely that the slate of issues prior to the election so the election is sort of the best case example, right? Because it, it's, I think of all the the things that Trump has done that ran contrary to the rule of law or to the values of democracy, I think that trying to overturn the election is sort of the, the capstone project. He's he's aced his final in that respect of, of causing problems. Um, if you go back to things like the travel ban and other things that Erica emphasizes in her piece... I don't think it's as galvanizing for the public, but more importantly, I think the the ultimate benefit of trying to signal to rep, Republican representatives in Congress that there's there's a way to be against there's a there's a proper zone where good conservatives can be against the president. Look, there there were plenty of people. I'm one of them who've been saying this from 2015 onward very loudly. And, and I, I don't count. No one cares what I think. But there were a lot of prominent people, people like John Bellinger, people with real credentials who were already saying this before the guy was even in, you know, the nominee. So some of that signaling was already in place. And I just don't think that Congress responds to that kind of signaling. I think it responds to what the polls show the base is doing, what are your chances of getting primaried, that sort of thing. But most importantly, so we're, we're obviously comparing imponderables and we're speculating about percentage likelihood of certain things happen and how much would the benefit of increased signaling early on that that conservative uh, lawyers were not okay with what was happening, a louder group of them doing it, how would that compare to the the cost of losing some of those people from the inside? I think about, uh, to give a particular example of, of something that I think we benefited from, I think about the recently resigned U.S. attorney for our district, um, John Bash, who had been charged by the Trump administration with doing an internal investigation on unmasking, trying to invent, trying to find a, a scandal there. And famously, although I guess not that many people paid attention, but at least famous in, in our circles, uh, John ultimately issued a very, as far as we can tell from the public record, because it's not all out there, but he made sure the findings were out there, that there was nothing to see here, nothing went wrong, non-issue, move along. Um, somebody like John, who, who's a, uh, a, a person in the mold, I think, of what, what Eric is talking about here, I'm so glad was there to do that role. And I think any kind of loud resignation from him two years before, 
wouldn't have moved the needle very much on on the bigger picture. So I, I to me, it's worth it to miss that opportunity to further signal early on in order to get the benefit of reasonable decisions on all these things that go on internal to the Justice Department, especially the attempts to use prosecutorial-minded investigation to gin up scandal. I'm really glad that we had as many reasonable people still in there to, to take that charge and then not allow it to be turned into something that it shouldn't be. I mean, I, I just, I just think we're always going to you know, disagree on this because I just think that you know, when we, how did we get to a point where we are today, where you know, six, seven weeks after the election, we're still in this place where the president is not just con- convincing his supporters the election was stolen, but where he's meeting with people like Cindy Powell and Michael Flynn and asking them whether he can call out the military to impose martial law and prevent the transition of power. I mean, you know. I want to talk about how we got to this point. And to me, a big part of how we got to this point was that there weren't more people like Erica at higher positions earlier in the administration. And that's a counterfactual that I'll never prove. Um, But, you know, we got here, like the factual narrative is here we are. And, you know, there's at least correlation with not a lot of high profile resignations. Um, So you mentioned a particular meeting. That might be a good segue since we know we're not going to persuade each other. Uh, that meeting has spurred lots of seditious conspiracy talk. 18 U.S. Code Section 2384 is a, as you said earlier, that's the starting place. It's not the ending place for this discussion. Um, how about uh, we give a quick read of the statute? I'm punching it up here. Um, quote, if two or more persons in any state or territory or any place subject to the jurisdiction of the United States conspire to overthrow, put down, or destroy by force the government of the United States, or to levy war against them, or to oppose by force the authority thereof, or by force to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any laws of the United States, or by force seize, take, or possess any property of the United States, contrary to the authority thereof, they shall each be fined under this title or imprisoned, not more than 20 years or both. Um, So do you actually see elements of a seditious conspiracy charge in play because of the um, the talk that's been reportedly going on in the Oval Office about trying to invoke martial law to overturn the results of the election? Not yet, um, right? I mean, not yet in the sense that like nothing has happened. And if the stories are to be believed, at least so far, the president has been talked out of pursuing any of the like let me just say, insane. Oh, thing. really insane. Let's. We that, should probably be clear for everybody. Like, yeah, this is totally insane. What, but being clinical about the legal issue, yes. um, let's assume well, so, they all, let's assume they actually put out a press release saying, like, "Hey, we're thinking about doing this." Do Do we think we have here? And if there's an agreement to do it, one one way to dig into the issue is: Do we need to understand overthrow, comma, put down, comma, or to destroy by force? Do we need to understand all of those as versions of using? force to overturn, put down, or destroy the government of the United States? Or can you do it without force? And does all of it not matter if what the thing Flynn or others wants the president to do is to use his own actual legal authority to try to do it? In other words, is it logically possible if he were to try to invoke say, the Insurrection Act, to try... I, I'm a little fuzzy on the details of what they have in mind here. That's what's making it hard to talk about. So, so are they. I mean, they have no right. idea. I mean, I mean, so so I, I think we should start... Like, let's start at the beginning. There is no legal mechanism for even the nonsense that they're proposing. Like, this notion that we can call out the military and all of a sudden just declare martial law, right. that's not how it works. Well, even, um, even, if, even if he did declare... First of all, there's no basis for declaring martial law, but even if he did declare martial law tomorrow... How in the world does that get you, therefore, the election, therefore, the Constitution's date for the expiration of his term in the Electoral College process? I mean, are we supposed to imagine, actually, that physical force would be used to prevent the Electoral College votes from being certified by Congress on January 6th? So that would be be seditious conspiracy. Right. That Um, would be using force to overthrow the government, to overthrow the government of the United States, raising, I guess, a technical question. Is this... 
It's not overthrowing the Trump administration. No, no, it's not, it's not, no, no it's, not, it's not that clause. It's the next one. Let me pull up the statute because yeah. you, you were ahead of me on this. Not the levy war clause. No, no. Delay the execution of any law, right? Delay, so, the, there you go. That works. Delay the execution of they, any law. It would be, it would be using a force to delay the execution of the Electoral Count Act of 1887. Yeah. And, um, and indeed the Constitution itself as being law. Amendment, yep. So, so l- listen, I mean, I, I, I want to be clear, but, but also, Bobby, you don't. You don't declare martial law. Martial law is a state of affairs that exists as a matter of fact, or it doesn't, right? Um, and you know, even invoking the Insurrection Act is invoking is calling out federal troops to enforce federal law, the same federal laws that have Congress meeting on January sixth. So, yeah, right. I, I, I don't listen. I my my sensitivity I, my sensitivity here is as the Second Circuit explained in the Rahman case, the the most significant federal well, appellate decision interpreting um, Section 2384, there are some pretty serious First Amendment issues um, with interpreting the statute too broadly. And much as I despise General Flynn, who blocks me on Twitter, by the way, um, much as I despise him, you know, bad cases make bad law. I don't think we should be, you know, just being an obnoxious, um, pompous ASS to me, is not a criminal offense. And so as long as this just stays as like disgusting anti-democratic chatter in the White House, I'm not offended. But but while we're here, it is worth pointing out that the UCMJ sedition statute is actually meaningfully broader. I mean, so if you look at 10 USC 894A2 um, or Article 94A2 of the UCMJ, any person subject to this chapter who with intent to cause the overthrow or destruction of lawful civil authority creates in concert with any other person revolt, violence, Bobby, or other disturbance um, against that authority is guilty of sedition. Uh, you know, if if Flynn really does push the president to pursue some kind of effort to prevent Congress from meeting, to prevent Biden from being inaugurated, I mean, I, I'm on record of how I, how I feel about um, trying retired service members by court martial. <laughs> but um, since you haven't yet won on that... Well, A, I haven't yet won on that outside of the D.C. District Court. And B, Flynn aside, right, none of this would matter unless you had a whole bunch of active duty service members um, who were uh, 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 complicit in the seditious activity, right? And so it just it seems to me that, like, we should be able to say two things in the same sentence. One is that this is offensive and nuts. And two is that it might actually not be illegal, but that's because not everything that's horrible and awful is a crime. So let's develop a little bit the the legal aspects of 10 U.S. Code or Article 94 of the UCMJ, A sub 2, as you say, the the word disturbance or phrase, other disturbance against the authority, that's the broadest catch-all phrase in there and therefore the place that would encompass the most conduct. As you noted a moment ago, this clearly has implications for the First Amendment. Steve, is the right way to think about the boundaries implicitly imposed by the First Amendment on the scope? of Article 94A2's other disturbance clause, is it Brandenburg? Is it That is to say, is it the incitement boundary? Because uh, that's my instinct, unless there's a UCMJ reason, a military context reason to think it's different there. I mean, I, mean, I could, I could, so I could imagine, Bobby, the government arguing that the normal First Amendment test is weaker under the UCMJ, right? That the government is allowed to take a more aggressive approach. I mean, check That's out, you know, wondering. Yeah. I mean, because Article 88, right? Like Article 88 of the UCMJ, um, 10 USC 888, right? Prohibits commissioned officers from using contemptuous words, right? Right. Um, I mean, if that doesn't violate the First Amendment, it's only because the First Amendment applies to a lesser degree, right? To folks subject to the UCMJ than to the rest of us. Right. No, I, I think there's something to what you're saying. If we were to imagine, if we were parsing just the regular Title 18 seditious conspiracy statute, um, then I think Brandenburg, the incitement doctrine, which is to say, for those who don't know this, Brandenburg's a case that's the iconic holding that the line between advocating stuff that would be illegal and actually being prosecutable for trying to encourage others to participate in illegal activity in this context is defined by whether your words are intended to have basically immediate and are likely to have immediate effect. So you're, you're actually yelling at the crowd, which might then immediately react to your words and, and go on the, the crime spree, whatever. But if what you're doing is is talking about something that you're trying to talk people into down the road, or you're not intending to actually make them do it, 
or they're not likely to respond to what you're encouraging. Those are all constitutional problems. Steve, I think you're right that the uh, the boundaries the First Amendment would impose here, actually, it would make sense for them to be more forgiving, a little more flexible for what the uh, the, the regulation can can do if it's the military context, precisely because probably the worst possible scenario for seditious advocacy, the most dangerous scenario, certainly would be serving or to a lesser extent, retired military officers. Um, Flynn's very close to the center of that bullseye. Now, I think we both agree, this is all just talk. I, I don't think for a second that any that any serving officer of the US military would, would remotely take action to betray the constitution, betray their oath and respond to some sort of call to seize the election, to overturn the election result and seize power. I don't believe that for a second, but it nonetheless is incumbent on all of us to sort of shout down intimations that maybe we should go that way. And then it's our little narrow job on this podcast to tell people how the legal framework would apply to it. I think that's right. And, and, I, and I, I mean, I, I think we also like ought to be comfortable in a world in which we can say things are completely indefensible and yet not crimes. Um, mm. Right. That like, you know, <laughs> there's loads of that. Right. Like, like not illegal is not the bar we're going for here. And the notion that, you know, the, that the president is at this point ignoring his closest White House advisors, including the White House counsel, is just I mean, I guess, you know, it, it's interesting, Bobby, I'm 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 I, I shouldn't be able to be surprised by this president anymore. Like, I mean, I guess, you know, this is deeply consistent and yet I'm still surprised. I mean, it's one of his superpowers is. Um, the unexpected, the unexpected ability to summon forth uh, something provocative. That, that's clearly something he's a master of. Well, uh, something else he might do that's provocative is try to prevent for the first time in 60 years, the National Defense Authorization Act from becoming law. Uh, it is pretty likely, though not certain, that tomorrow on Wednesday, the 23rd, which is his last day to affirmatively do it, he'll take that step. Uh, then there's a window of time, a brief window of time that falls incredibly inconveniently across the holidays where Congress could come back. And it looks likely they would attempt to come back and marshal supermajorities. Um, Steve, any prognostication on whether they could actually get there? Because you can't base it on who, what the numbers were for voting for it in the first instance. That's not the same in the eyes, at least of some congressional Republicans. It's not the same as voting to override the veto. Do you think the House could even uh, get a supermajority? I think we're going to find out. Um, you know, I, I, I actually do think I, I wasn't sure when we talked about this last week. I actually do think the president is going to, you know, potentially follow through on this. And I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, how many Republicans want to be tagged with, you know, um, voting with the president to, to, you know, voting to sustain the president's veto on the ground that the Defense Authorization Act doesn't get rid of two thirty and you know, yeah. would allow for the renaming of Confederate military and military. Well, bases. I, I think quite a few. I think quite a few viewed this as a feature, not a bug, and will be very but, happy. But quite, to quite, quite, quite a few, but quite a few is not the same as I don't. I don't remember what the exact math is. Sixty-five, I think, is all the you would need. You would like you would need all. Wait, no, it's so it's two ninety to override, right? So you would need one hundred and thirty-six Republicans, assuming all the Democrats vote to override. You need one hundred and thirty-six Republicans. Um, to vote to sustain. And listen, are there 100? Sure. Are there 115? Sure. Um, there were not 136 to sign on to the crazy Texas lawsuit. So I think we're going to have some good C-SPAN watching is what you're telling me. Sometime <laughs> during the break when uh, when bowl games are being canceled and relatives aren't there to, well, I don't know if that's a bug or a feature, it depends on your family. Um, people are going to be looking for something to watch. C-SPAN is going to be there for you with a dramatic uh, roll call vote, the yays and the nays. And then if it, if it does get overridden in the House by supermajority, it goes to the Senate where procedural obstacles will, will further muddy the water. Um, do you have any stronger sense of whether it's likely to get overridden in the Senate? I think if the House overrides, I, I, I think, I think, McC I think McConnell is probably hoping that the House doesn't override. Um, so that he doesn't have to have the vote. I think if the House overrides, it puts a, it puts a lot of pressure on the more moderate voices in the Senate Republican caucus. I mean, I think I think there are easily ten Republican votes to to override. You know, whether there are sixteen or seventeen, whether that's the relevant number, depending upon what happens in Georgia. I mean, there's a lot to play for. Right. I think I think the Senate does it with much more ease 
than the house, but we'll see. So do I. I mean, so, so do I. Yeah. So one of the things that's then that's on the table, what's at stake in all this? There's a lot. Um, but apropos of the national angsting over solar winds, this is the uh, the Austin-based company whose uh, IT management software platform was so widely used in the civilian parts of the federal government and was, uh, it, it appears, was uh, used by the Russians as a way to backdoor all those systems by, by hacking solar winds. They were able to plant malware called Sunburst into these IT management system updates, which all these customers then brought into their systems. And then from there, Sunburst enabled uh, the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service, the SVR, to uh, to drop in uh, further malware to, to go ahead and exploit the system for intelligence. That's what we know so far. And though the the national dialogue seems incredibly fixated on how we should therefore think about deterrence and this and that, and should we have talk about cyber Pearl Harbor? That to me is all a giant red herring. The, the first and foremost question is, what does this tell us about the state of our, uh, our detection capabilities within the federal civilian executive branch systems that are at issue here? And what authorities or resources or capabilities does it indicate we need to get in place ASAP so this doesn't happen again, or so we can more accurately say that we'll minimize the chances of it happening again. And it so happens that the NDAA has a very relevant provision in it, Steve. Section 1705 is titled, Strengthening Federal Networks, semicolon, CISA, Cybersecurity Support to Agencies. CISA is the DHS component that's famous now because of Chris Krebs, who helped uh, who helped this organization rise to prominence and efficacy in its support to the integrity of our elections. And then it gains even more prominence when Donald Trump duly and, and entirely predictably responds by firing Chris Krebs. Um, CISA would gain a new authority. Title 44 is where you find their capabilities, Section 3553 in particular. And the NDAA would add something that CISA could do, quote, hunting for and identifying with or without advance notice to or authorization from agencies, threats and vulnerabilities within federal information systems. In short, CISA would, would gain much clearer authority. There's an argument they actually have a version of this authority already, but it's, it's very murky and not effective. This would clearly establish that CISA could decide to undertake um, uh, threat detection within federal agency systems rather than being limited to things like perimeter inspection of traffic coming in and out. That's a separate issue. 1705 is a good idea. Its utility is manifest by looking at the solar winds incident, and it needs also to go with it a substantial boost in resources to CISA, tailor-made tailor or committed for supporting this mission, because this is an expensive, uh, both in terms of tools and personnel and, and allocations of effort, an expensive capability. But the whole dialogue really ought to be, first and foremost, hey, we sure could use NDAA section 1705 and then a big dollop of money to support that function. Now, what else do we want to talk about with solar winds? But, you know, tomorrow the president's going to veto this because of, you know, Confederate base names and also, whatever else. But also, meanwhile, I mean, I think it's worth stressing that, you know, we also have the story about how DOD has stopped briefing transition officials, um, right, and has stopped working with folks from the Biden, from the Biden you know, beach, beachfront team, um, right, about the sort of, you know, how to, about everything DOD related, but including the hack. I mean, this is just. So I, I only know a little bit about that story. I did see that there was a DOD press statement claiming that their view was that they had a long planned break over the holidays for this and that the Biden transition response was, no, you're stonewalling us. Um, uh, I, 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 think, I don't know how to. All I'll, say is, all, all I'll say is the, the Pentagon press corps, who who plays it pretty straight, I mean, people like Barbara Starr, Katie Bill Williams, et cetera, um, have been reporting pretty consistently that this that the the DOD press statement is, is um, how do I say, um, reeks of post hoc justification. Huh. Um, well, I think we can agree on this. There's no question this will go down as 
the worst handled, most mishandled presidential transition of all time. No contenders. That won't even be a question people can ask anymore. There will just be this. And then you have questions about, okay, yeah, set aside. But who's second? Right. What, what are some what are some transitions where they tried to do a transition and did a bad job but, of but it? We, but, I mean, we joke about this, but I mean, I, I just want to say, I mean, I've said this before, you know, the 9-11 commission report, one of the things it says is that, you know, the intelligence capability of the United States were at least harmed to some degree by the fact that the Bush transition got a late start, not even because there was animosity between the the litigation, yeah, litigation, you know, I I hope that this doesn't actually cause irreparable national security harm, but there's precedent for it doing exactly that. No, it's awful. And and the same dynamics playing out all across the government, including all these areas that you and I don't follow. Um, One thing that's happening in the meantime uh, at the Pentagon was this sudden story that broke last week about how uh, acting Secretary Miller uh, was apparently driving towards trying to direct NSA and Cybercom to split. And the short the backgrounder there is that NSA and Cybercom are co-commanded. They have the same leader. They're co-located. They share the same accesses and capabilities or substantially share these things. And the whole idea was that Cybercom, which is a relatively new institution, uh, was cleverly incubated, in effect, within and alongside NSA. And it, it was always assumed initially that, of course, they'd eventually split. The whole point of this wasn't to permanently make them hybrid. It was to incubate. Um, over time, two things have kept that split from occurring. One is no one thought it was a good idea to split prematurely. And what defines that is the operational readiness, not just in sort of an immediate sense for Cybercom, but also in the longer term sense of having a sustained ability to replenish the capabilities that you need to operate effectively in the cyber domain. Um, The ability to generate exploits, the ability to generate command and control infrastructure, the the whole nine yards. And and not to mention the personnel flow that you need to sustain at a certain level of quantity and quality. And so there's been sort of a, a, a widely agreed sense that, okay, well, Nothing should happen by way of a split until Cybercom has crossed certain readiness thresholds. Nonetheless, during the the heyday of the U.S. military involvement against the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, there was a a moment of controversy that played out for a while where a separate issue arose where some felt that Cybercom was being held back operationally by the dual-headed commander's uh, supposedly undue preferencing for preserving collection capabilities at the expense of taking down Islamic State recruitment sites, et cetera. And so this led to a separate reason people wanted separation. Some wanted separation so as to, quote unquote, unleash uh, the Title X operations of Cybercom. But I think for others of us, and I'm in this camp, what it highlighted was the criticality can I say that? Criticality of the deconfliction process between collection equities, which the Title 50 side of the house will always emphasize, and operational disruptions from the Title 10 side. And um, the dual hat arrangement has a built-in way of having somebody who's charged with the real serious element of equities in both operations having to do that deconfliction ultimately. And that's what the dual hat does. Anyways, Congress at that point got involved and said, no one, they, they cannot separate unless and until both the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff both issue a series of certifications certifying that operational readiness has been reached and that a new replacement deconfliction process is in place. Now, there's also some reporting to Congress, and that's where it gets interesting because this story went public when House Armed Services uh, Committee Chairman Adam Smith, Democrat of Washington, uh, revealed to the public letters he had had to send both to Acting uh, Secretary of Defense Miller and to Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff General Milley, saying, "I, the little birdies told me that there's a plan afoot to order the separation. We have not seen anything about a certification. We've not heard anything about how suddenly that certification process is teed up to go." Um, grave concerns. And soon thereafter, uh, he was joined, it became bipartisan when the bipartisan leadership in Congress of the Solarium Commission, people like Ben Sass, got involved all saying like, what is going on here? This is not okay. Um, Then yesterday, Ellen Nakashima reported uh, that Acting Secretary Miller, his view apparently is personally, he wants to take this step, but he now knows that the certifications are not ready to be issued. What lurks in the background is a sense that either people were not competently minding the store and may not even have quite realized these certifications were there and that there was a statutory barrier to any action, and or 
that General Milley signaled back that he was not going to go along with this, this last minute effort to do something that will have profoundly important consequences if and when it eventually happens. So that story looks like it's dead. That's one initiative in these this this remarkably busy lame duck period where acting Secretary Miller is trying to get a lot of points on the board. Um, that's one that is not seemingly going to happen. So I think we can turn turn away from that one. Any thoughts on that, Steve? I, I mean, it's just it's it, transitions are usually time to wind down things, not wind up. And I feel like you know, I mean, I, the, the the amount of things that they're trying to get through in the last month. I, I, I yeah. are you trying to give them the John Adams Award? I mean, at least Adams was focused on judges, like they're doing everything. I mean, you know, confirming. I mean, the what the first lame duck confirmation of a vacancy that arose after a presidential election that that switched parties since like what eighteen ninety four. I mean, they're they're really eighteen ninety two. I don't remember the exact, but like they're they're really going for it. Well, there was a statement on behalf of the acting secretary saying that uh, he's in caretaker mode and that. What he really wants to do is set the table up for the next secretary to be able to succeed, which is kind of a classic thing the interim does, right? You 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 put I, out I, little, I, you, let me finish. you you put out the fires, so the, the things that need to get done. That's that's not what these things are. These are hugely important, highly contested policy initiatives. This is this one's you know minor compared to let's say pulling all defense pulling most defense department support for CIA title 50 counterterrorism operations overseas which is tantamount to shutting them down in some cases uh, pulling all ground forces out of Somalia you know step by step by step these are these are really big things it's not caretaker activity I'm in caretaker mode except that I um, am not meeting with my successor <laughs> right well there there is that too um, speaking of Somalia um, Hot on the heels of news that the Trump administration and Secretary... Wait, wait, wait. Before we go to Somalia, yeah. wait. You forgot the most important thing to come out of DOD. What's that? Guardians. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. So I assume you're with me in being really disappointed that the the service member appellation, the equivalent of soldier, marine, you know, sailor... Airman. For, for Space Force is going to be Guardians. Do... Do you think is this supposed to be a call out to Guardians of the Galaxy? Is that what that's supposed to be? It, it's dumb, is what it's. I mean, what was to. the what was the second place option? Did they hire the same people that brought you the Orlando Magic and the Washington Wizards? I mean, come on, this is this is like US. Actually, I was about to bag on the USFL. They had some okay team names. This, I, I think this is more like I think this is more like the folks who took the the South Texas Col- College of Law and spent millions of dollars trying to rebrand it as the what the Houston College of Law, only to lose a trademark infringement suit from the University of Houston. Ah, uh, oh, that was, that was an awkward uh, moment for our friends in Houston, especially the rebranding of their colors to match Houston Law Center's colors. I feel like the, the, the colors were the worst part. Like, okay, I understand that like you changed your name from South Texas because you want everyone to know that you're in Houston. Okay, I'm with you there. But you changed your colors to match the University of Houston's. Like, I yeah. know, but but Steve, one has the golden arches, the other <laughs> has the golden arcs. <laughs> we'll get to that later. Uh, 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 their buns have sesame seeds. Our buns don't. <laughs> oh, McDowell's. All right, so more McDowell's in a minute. Oh, that's too good. Sorry, um, doing, oh, yeah, I, I I distracted you. No, no, just we'll do a quick lightning round because let's get to the frivolity. So. This is not frivolous at all. This is as serious as a heart attack. Uh, a, a Kenyan citizen allegedly acting on behalf of the external operations uh, leadership for Al-Shabaab um, went to the Philippines, got trained in how to fly a plane in the, and then was conducting research. What's the tallest building in the United States in various cities? How do you get a visa to go to the United States? Um, the framing is very much, it was an attempt by Al-Shabaab to conduct an external operation inside the United States. Let's be really clear about how scary this is. Um, as horrific as Al-Shabaab is, and as, as willing as they are to conduct external operations outside of Somalia in the East Africa larger region, including this, not only, but especially in Kenya, um, and as hostile as they certainly are towards Americans, as much as they've expressly called for killing Americans, what, what as far as I know, the public record doesn't show is any kind of serious operational activity trying to pull off an attack within the United States in a direct command and control sort of way like this. So 
One really hopes it was a one-off. Uh, the guy's under arrest. He's in the United States now. Intriguingly, uh, you and I always observe this. Uh, he's in federal civilian custody in the Southern District of New York, no less. Steve, is it possible that one could conduct a civilian criminal prosecution in the Southern District of New York right there in Manhattan and actually do that? And we're going to do it for a 9-11 style plot. But of course, we somehow just couldn't do it for the actual 9-11 plot. I will predict for you that this guy, uh, Chola Abdullah, his case will be over before Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's is. And that's his, ridiculous. His case will be over before KSM starts. Even like though, I, you, you underbid me. That was like a price is right moment. You went I will, I will, I will go one dollar. I, I went, I'm going one dollar here. His, his, his trial will be over before the trial of the 9 11 defendants and the Gitmo military commissions begins. I will, I am, I will put that on a marker now. Mm, I, I want to disagree so we can bet on it, but I find you very persuasive on that estimation. Yeah. Uh, I suspect this, I, another reason is I suspect this guy will plead out uh, eventually. Whew. Okay, that wasn't the only DOJ National Security Division. Uh, recently, there's always a lot. We don't we don't hit all of it uh, by any stretch. In fact, I'll just note there were some there were some cases in, under the general heading of national security, sort of um, arms control cases uh, arising out of Austin. Believe it or not, but more importantly, is the surprising news yesterday on the 32nd, I think, anniversary of the outrageously horrific bombing of Pan Am Flight 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland. Uh, on the anniversary, they announced in, uh, charges against Abu Agala Massoud, a former Libyan and a Qaddafi regime intelligence agent who is said to have been, a for multiple decades, a bomb maker for the external security organization, the ESO, and who made and then delivered to the airport the suitcase bomb that killed those 270 innocents. Um, what a scumbag. But here's here's some part of what's interesting about this. Um, he's in Libyan custody. He's been in Libyan custody, I gather, since the collapse of the Gaddafi regime. What's happened is that at some point he's he's interrogated by by new Libyan officials and confesses or admits or describes his role in the Pan Am 103 operation. And by the way, maybe also the 1986 LaBelle discotheque bombing, which precipitated the Reagan administration's decision to conduct Operation Eldorado Canyon bombing uh, Gaddafi's compound. So lots of ties in there to the, the original war on terrorism in the 1980s. Um, Bill Barr, as attorney general under George H.W. Bush, had... Uh, presided over charging or attempting to extradite two other Libyan operatives involved in this operation. Um, their story ends up being very complex. They end up, there's a negotiated agreement where they got sent to a, a special proceeding, I think in the Netherlands, one acquitted, one convicted, the guy's convicted, doesn't serve long, get, gets allowed to come home to a, to a quote unquote hero's welcome, really unsavory stuff. Well, so we really like to get this guy. And so Bill Barr has a prior tie-in with this case. And you can kind of feel that on his way out, one of his last items on his checklist was he wanted they, – they clearly don't have the grand jury ready to indict yet for whatever reason, but you can issue the criminal complaint. That's what they did. And so that was a on-the-way-out-the-door item for Bill Barr, and I think a good one. Um, I don't know if this guy is going to get extradited. They, they are hopeful, but we'll see. In any event, the guy who had interrogated Masood – had eventually been interviewed by Scotland Yard officers and FBI agents. And so we've had this story, this now secondhand version of the story. I don't know that anything will ever actually happen in a U.S. court from here, but it's it's good to see people have not forgotten the horror of what happened there. Yeah. I mean, it's also, I think, further proof that, you know, Tasha's limitations are are quite a thing <laughs> when they when they when they don't exist. Um, we should we should save for another time. My understanding is that there's also been some movement, Bobby, on the treatment of Sudan as a state sponsor of terrorism. We should probably plan to tackle that in a forthcoming episode. Yeah, that also call. In our, call. In our bailiwick. Um, but but time is of the essence, and we have Mandalorian to discuss. I'm excited. Okay, friends, if you don't want the spoilers, thanks for being here. Spread the word, um, and here we go. All right, break it down for us, Steve. I liked it. Now you've been feeling bad about it. what? What changed your tune? Is is it just Luke and R two? No, because I actually thought part of that was hokey. 
Um, but actually what I really liked was that like, I thought the whole episode was dramatic as opposed to like one long, like distraction, like the, you know, chasing down the Lambda class shuttle and, you know, the sort of boarding the shuttle and finding out where the cruiser is and the plan to, and seeing the TIE fighters in the launch bay. I mean, like the, just the whole, like this episode worked start to finish, even with the hokey Luke CGI. Do you think it only worked because there were the episodes prior to it setting it up, the ones you didn't like as much? Like, did did you like, feel like, like all right, I got, I, I they earned their pay in retrospect? Like the like the like the classic second to last episode of Game of Thrones each season that like you know sped things up to a to a frenetic pace and we're like, oh my god, that was amazing. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, but also, I mean, you know, I I, I guess it's also. As you pointed out, I think quite quite correctly, either last week or two weeks ago, I'm much more into the the Star Wars part of this and not the Western part of this. And right, right. and the whole episode felt Star Wars, not Western. Yeah, fair enough. Hey, can we break down the Dark Troopers? Um, are they meant to look like? Are, how much is this a conscious visual? How much is their um, their artistic design meant to evoke Cylons? Do you think is that part of this? Sure, look like them a little bit. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think you know you could argue that Star Wars was there first, but not really from the from the Mark One Cylons from the original Battlestar Galactica. Um, yeah, they they had some Cylon going for them. Although I guess I, I I've never thought about whether a lightsaber would be an effective weapon against a Cylon. Um, according to Luke, they work really, really well when nothing else does except for Beskar spears. Um, I thought that just to drop the comment. I, I thought they much as at the end of, of the end of Rogue One, where you get some great Darth Vader action done with a lot more verve, a lot more modern verve than you got in the seventies and the eighties. So too here, we get to see Luke with a lot more verve and yeah, what he could, what Luke in his prime could do. Bad, badass Jedi Luke. I, I believe at one point he does use the force to crush. He So the, the crushing, the tin can crush was awesome. That was positively Vader-esque. But also he like uh, kind of David and Goliath slingshots a, a severed head off one dark trooper to crush up the skull of another one. That was that was great all around. Um, and I, I liked it that first, you know, you know who it is as soon as you see the, the, the lone X-Wing. But I like it that they give you the green saber, which was juiced up a little bit more than the films. Right, and then the you black get the hand. black hand. That was great. Yep. It was like, it was like you, you knew who it was, but they still played it out. They still dragged it out nicely. Well, now, what about um, – I thought we also got some pretty great Darksaber action there. That was that was pretty fun. And, of course, the payout of like, here, here, uh, you know, take my Beskar spear. Let me emphasize again, it's Beskar. It's a spear. You carry that spear around. Why? So that eventually you have something to fight a guy who's got a Darksaber. Otherwise, you're going to have a tough time fighting him. Um I thought that battle scene, that little fight scene in the hallway was pretty good. Um, I thought the whole episode just like, you know, as much as any episode in the series to, to thus far, I really do think that the, the episode just, it's why it, it's everything I like about the Mandalorian and, and almost nothing that I don't like. Okay. Is it speaking of game of Thrones? Is it, is it now the case that, uh, that our hero, that Pedro Pascal is on his way to being the King of the Mandalorians accidentally? Yeah. So it's interesting how that, so did did you make it did did you watch the post credits scene? No, no. Oh, Bobby. Oh, shoot. No. Oh, I don't want I don't want to spoil this for you. Okay, All right. I'll, I'll you, go watch it. I, I did not. There is a post credits scene in at the end of of the season finale of The Mandalorian. I'm so pleased. All right, I know what I'm doing. I'm not going right back to grading exams. I will go watch that as soon as it's, it's not long, and it will it will it will blow your mind. Well, okay, it will blow your mind. It'll, it'll, I think it will. I think it will. It will stir excitement um, about the future of the enterprise. Did I don't you, mean. No, I don't mean not that, that enterprise. Not that. Not that enterprise. Did you? Title. That's a good one. Yeah, not that enterprise. Did you feel pretty good about the emotional payoff of the separation? Um, including the uh, the unma- you know the further unmasking of Pedro Pascal, who's who bit who bit by bit is getting more and more comfortable with his mask off, paving the way for a season three or season four where he can just be seen all the time. Oh, it's going to be hard for him to go back and be the king of Mandalore if he has his mask off, right? I don't know. It seems like uh, Bo Katan and all them seem to feel like you don't really have to wear your mask except when you're fighting. I feel like that's kind of where we're heading with Pedro Pascal too. Bobby, this is this is the way. This is the way. All right. Um, uh, the Giants, um, you know, I'll skip the Giants. So, have you have you have you watched the coming to? So, you, you've watched the coming to America uh, trailer. Yeah, I watched it just a little while ago, and 
Um, it it is going out of its way to make sure you know that they're gonna they're gonna play all their old characters from sexual chocolate to. But, but uh, I don't. I mean, like, that that's not the movie I want to see. Like, coming what from is America, the movie you want to see? Uh, I, I, I don't thought it's just pure, just like fan service recreation of the original. But it's not 1987 anymore. I mean, like you know, all the all the terrible jokes that they made, all the terrible names that they call Akeem and Semi in the barbershop in the in the in the trail in the preview. It's like those are uncomfortable now. Like, well, isn't, don't you think that's what Andy Murphy and Arsenio Hall are going for here? That in, in fact, that particular scene, right? They 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 use increasingly inappropriate 80s style uh, names, just like the characters would have then. The one guy in the chair tries to join in, and then they all freak out. I'm like, "Oh, you went too far!" That's politically incorrect. Yeah, and, and then they go a step further after throwing that guy out of the shop. Eddie Murphy's comedy, as as everyone who grew up listening to this comedy knows, um, clearly is a creature of its time. And many people have observed how hard it is, to, how hard it would be for Eddie Murphy's comedy to ever be break in in that way in today's um, much more sensitive discourse climate. And and I feel like I've seen accounts of how that's Eddie Murphy's not not comfortable with trying to change his humor and wants to be transgressive in some ways, sort of an anti PC type dimension. And I think you saw that in that scene. I suspect the movie is going to be aggressively along those lines, at least in part. Maybe maybe that's just the one time they do it, but it wouldn't surprise me. And I guess it's a question of how much is the movie a product of, of Eddie Murphy's creative vision and how much of it. I think it's I think it's an Amazon Prime film, yep. if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Yep. And and how uh, bold is Amazon Prime in terms of what they'll put forward out there? Like, will this really challenge boundaries on humor that exploits cultural stereotypes and so forth? I, I'm a little skeptical. It's going to go very far. That barbershop scene may have been the outer limit of it. I, yeah, we'll see. I, I don't know. I, I also, I mean, you know, as with any sequel, like I'm a little worried about how much violence they're going to do to the original as part of the plot of the sequel. But, you know, yeah, we'll see. At least um, George Lucas isn't involved in this project. There you go. Um, did you see, by the way, my favorite legal typo of all time? <laughs> no, I don't think so. What is it? So Lynn Wood, you know, crazy, crazy Lynn Wood lawyer guy. The Trump lawyer, um, Trump election yeah, lawyer. One of, the, one of these crazy people. So he filed, an appeal, no, he filed a new complaint in a new case on Friday or Saturday, maybe Friday. And he verified the complaint, which, by the way, makes no sense given the context. But in the verification section, he says, I swear under plenty of perjury. <laughs> no he did not yep under plenty of perjury which oh, that's just, the best uh, Freudian uh, autocorrect ever non-lawyer listeners if you're going to write that kind of statement which again I don't think he needed to write uh, the correct formulation is under penalty of perjury not plenty of perjury hey, that's funny that, and, and the beauty of that statement is it's necessarily true because I was going to say either, like, you know, he, hey it's a verified complaint he wanted to be Either the complaint is full of plenty of perjury, or it's not. In which case, the verification itself is pejorious. Wait, no. So he, well, I think he's covered either way, right? That's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> that is genius. Uh, I don't think genius is the word I would use, but it's something. Well, no, it's a very, it's, it's a certain kind of genius, a very stable kind of genius. Oh, very stable genius. Oh, God, help us. When, when, when can be, when, when can we be rid of these meddlesome priests? I, I, I don't, don't put it that way. But on the, on the bright side, we got what one month to go, supposedly. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, what, what could possibly go wrong? Yeah. Oh. Um, all right, really quickly, do you want to say a word about the um, the the guest hosting opportunity situation, or should we save that for next week? Yeah, I'll talk about that next week. Um, I do think we're coming up on Jake's appearance on the show. Indeed, right? that is so Jake, great. Jake Bishop is the is the winner of the Texas Law Fellowships auction opportunity as a a, a student at UT who's going to be joining us for a guest episode in January. So, Jake, I hope you are listening to every episode and getting ready. Um, I also want to uh, quickly plug um, this week's episode of In Local Parents, which will drop on Thursday, um, features Karen and my really cool interview with Congresswoman Mikey Sherrill, um, who is uh, not just a soon-to-be second-term Congresswoman from northern New Jersey, but also a former Navy helicopter pilot. Um, awesome. And a, a, She has a, a fascinating story and just a remarkable career and somehow did it all while raising four kids. So, dang, wow. Wow. Yeah. She wins. Anyway, so that'll be out Thursday morning, um, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Um, what else you got, Bobby? Uh, I think it's a, just, uh, first of all, do follow Steve and Karen's show. That's fantastic. 
Uh, spread, spread the word on this one. We're, we were, uh, Steve, we're now steadily over 13000 per episode. Holy Toledo. I wish I was saying $13,000, but of course, we don't make no money off this, and that's okay. Um, one of these days, man. One one day, suddenly, it's you're, you guys are going to be minding your own business, listening to the opening beat, and suddenly Steve is talking about Casper mattresses, and I'm talking about Harry's. No, 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 no. I'm talking about the 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 the, the amazing taste of pineapple east cider, especially. Oh on yes, Fire Eagle IPA. It's crisp beyond description, so I won't Seriously. try. Um, although I will try if paid to do so. All right, I think that's probably it. <laughs> All right, here that Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, we may do another episode before the end of the year. We may I think not. We'd better, just in case. You know, my friend Pat Gray, who does Risky Business from Down Under, his podcast. Um, every time he go, he'll take like you know a, a vacation. He'll always say like you know last episode for the break. What could possibly go wrong with being gone for two weeks? I think 2020's final week is just. Hard to believe 2020 is going to go out quietly. So I suspect we'll be back. I said there was an ominous uh, tweet I sent right, right about this time last year. There was a meme going around next year in five words. Um, and my, my entry was 2020 will be worse. Um, and I, th- I think that tweet has aged very, very well. So oh hopefully, hopefully we can go out on a limb and say 2021 will be better. I think it will be. Um, and, and the reality is at the end of the day, the vaccines are here. They're, they're spreading in our communities. Thank God, the right kind of spread. Um, and it's going to get better and better in the months ahead. Everybody hang in there. If you, if you're listening to this and you've been having a really hard time, helps on the way, hang in there. And, uh, in the meantime, we'll, we'll be here to talk to you every week, more or and, less. And more or less. And, and you can take solace in the fact, um, that if nothing else in your world is going well, at least you know that President Trump today named Rick Grinnell to be a member of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Council. Rick Grinnell, thank you for your service. All right. Uh, stay safe out there. Adios.